Uh, will you all join me in prayer? But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Father, you give comfort to the afflicted, but have not turned your fa- and have not turned your face from them. You have heard them when they have cried out. The depths of your mercy, your grace are unfathomable. We plead for your forgiveness that we do turn away. We don't hear. We are not gracious and merciful. We praise Jesus' name that you have allowed us the gift of repentance and that in Jesus at the cross you change the disposition of our hearts. And we do turn back. We do hear. We do give grace and mercy. Give us the wisdom to remember we would experience none of this if not for Jesus. Let that turn us away from our idols of worship and towards the worship of you. And let the worship of the one true God turn our face toward the lives of the suffering and the afflicted. Father, we pray for our mission's partner, the King's Home, and their mission to give women and children refuge and hope from domestic violence, neglect, abandonment, homelessness, and other circumstances of difficulty and poverty. And Father, we continue to lift up our beloved members of Covenant's family, Wynn and Lane Jones and Bill and Cindy Hay. We thank you for this day that you have made, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Christy and I were in Huntsville this weekend uh, with about 105 of uh, the leaders of our church, and we had a really good time together. There were a lot of deacons there, not all of them, but, but most of them. Uh, a lot of uh, our current uh, elders, ruling elders on the session, also uh, elders that aren't currently on the session, a lot of our shepherding elders and uh, women from our women's shepherding team. And so we had over 100 people, and it was great. We had a lot of fun, and I am completely exhausted. Uh, so I love to stand in front of you and preach in exhaustion. And so I get, I can do that today. Um, but really the reason I mentioned that leadership retreat is we're studying first Peter together. We're getting really close to the end. And I want you to understand that, uh, Peter thinks leadership in the church is really important. And that's what our passage is about today. One of the passages we looked at over the weekend really focused on what deacons do. Well, today's passage really focuses on what elders do. And in our context, teaching elders, what we typically call pastors and ruling elders, uh, those that we often just refer to as elders. And I want, before I dive in and read the passage, I want to remind you of what Peter has been saying to us again and again and again. So remember the main thrust of the letter, because today's passage helps us think how in the world we're going to live out this thing that God's calling us to through first Peter. So here's this constant theme through first Peter. Jesus has come as your savior. You've identified with King Jesus, your savior, and the world rejected him, mistreated him, abused him, 
he didn't fight it. He submitted to it. And because he didn't fight it and he submitted to it, that actually led to your salvation and creates a great example for you. And so what Peter's been saying throughout the letter is, uh, I want you to stay in there, trusting that Jesus is your salvation, trusting that he's laid down the perfect model for you. And Peter's saying this under these circumstances. In last week's passage, uh, he referred to it as fiery trials. Peter mentions suffering 17 times in the letter. And every time he talks about our suffering in this particular letter, he's focused on not general suffering, which really matters. And the Bible talks about a lot, but the specific suffering of identifying with Jesus and being rejected and mistreated when you do good. Now I know that themes come up a lot in our sermons because all through the letter, but at some point, have you not just asked yourself the question, really? Is that really God's plan? Is it really God's plan when people mistreat me that I return blessing to them? Is that really what God's calling me to do? Is that really what God expects of us as his people? That when people mistreat us, we don't pay them back. No, we show them patience and forbearance and kindness. And we bless those who mistreat us. Is that really what God's calling to do? The answer to that question is yes. That is the calling on those who believe in Jesus. We're ambassadors of a savior who suffered to save us. And sometimes he calls us to suffer, to reveal his merciful, kind, gracious, and saving ways. That really is the call on our lives. So then if we're wise people, we'll be like, well, how in the world do we become those kind of people? How do we mature more and more to become people who can be mistreated and for God's sake, for the sake of embodying the good news about Jesus, when we're mistreated, we don't give it back. We pay back kindness for evil treatment. We pay back patience and forbearing love for mistreatment. How do we become those people? Well, that's what this passage is about today. And so Peter wants us to show us uh, the answer to how in this passage is we need selfless shepherding real submission and humility shepherding submission and humility will enable us to be these kind of people now i'm gonna call a timeout right here aren't some of you saying "Uh uh-uh i can't do it it's not how i'm wired i failed at that too many times We serve a God who has great power. Let's turn to his word and trust our hearts to him and see what he does with weak and weary people like me, like you today. Peter had said, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Uh Peter had already said, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now our passage, that was the previous verse. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who were younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, so here's the structure of our passage and my sermon today. In the first five verses, there's three exhortations. Uh, Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock. He tells young people to be subject to their elders. And he tells all of us to clothe ourselves with humility. So those are the three uh, exhortations. In the next section of our passage, he gives us four imperatives. We'll run through those pretty fast. But then at the end, I want you to see there's, there's one God who's funding this impossible project. To have people like you and me, not only rescued by Jesus Christ, but becoming more like him. And if God is able, then I guess it can happen. So there, there's our structure. First of all, in verses one through five, will you see these three exhortations with me? This is how we become those people. And the plan's pretty simple. It's just going to require a lot of God's grace to use it, put it into practice. First exhortation is to the elders among you. And the exhortation is to shepherd God's flock right there in verse two. Uh, Peter's going to talk a lot about humility in this passage. And he begins by putting himself in the same plane with all the elders. He says, as a fellow elder, I exhort you, shepherd the flock. You see that humility? Peter could have said, as one of the apostles, capital A, mind you, I command you, shepherd the flock or else. That's not what he says. Yes, he's an apostle, but he also is an elder. He's also one who shepherds. He's also an overseer. And the apostle Peter, one of the three men who went up with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration, looks at the elders in this room through the scriptures and says, I'm one of you. We're on the same team. Now, this passage I want you to know is directed to actual elders ordained to that office um, I want, in, in our church, we have a whole lot of people doing shepherding. As a matter of fact, we want the whole body, we want us all to shepherd each other and remind each other where the verdant grasses are growing and where the life-giving streams are. We have over 35 women on a women's shepherding team, and we couldn't do this without them. But this passage is directed to elders who are giving oversight, and they're, what they're called to do is shepherd. And it's interesting to have those three words together, elder shepherd giving oversight it's a good description of the office of elder both teaching and ruling elders and i just want you to hear for a minute what in the apostle peter's mind and by the inspiration of the holy spirit what fits the office of elder what kind of people the apostle peter is exhorting us who are elders in this room to be shepherd the flock god's flock that is among you 
exercising oversight and then look at these negatives and positives. Not under compulsion, no one needs to put you in a chicken wing, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, not uh, trying to acquire more honor or comfort for yourself, but willingly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Isn't it interesting that the first one, uh, not under compulsion, it's, it's as though Peter knows that when situations get difficult, some of us in leaders will punt, will go passive, and will avoid the fires of conflict. And you hear the other thing he said, not domineering. It's as though somehow Peter knows that uh, some of us in leadership, when things get bad, we'll get real bossy. And isn't it amazing what he just said to the elders, to the leaders of the church? Don't punt and don't tackle. Don't go hide and be passive, but don't get aggressive. I want you to willingly and eagerly be examples to the flock. The flock that is among you, you're in their midst. So be an example, willingly, eagerly shepherd the flock. And uh, uh, you know the word Episcopalian and you've heard of bishops. Well, that's the word here, um, exercising oversight. Episcopos, you know, looking over. That's what, that's exactly what Peter wants elders to do. Pay attention to the, to the lives of God's people, willingly, eagerly setting examples. And here's, here's the heart of it. Reminding God's people, the sheep of God, where the clean water is, where the good grass lies. That's the chief job of the shepherd, to keep pushing people back to this chief shepherd, keeping them in the pen where the grass is good and we know where to find the streams. That's the chief job of the shepherd. That's what a shepherd does. So I want you to see the second exhortation. Uh, It's half a verse, uh, so I won't say a whole lot about it, but it's so helpful. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I can't tell you how thankful I am that y'all didn't know me when I was a teenager. And I'm really glad you didn't know me even when I was in my 20s. Because I could be uh, headstrong and you wouldn't believe how much I understood about the world. Just ask my parents. I had it all figured out. Um, and, And you know what? I'm not saying that we don't have very sharp young people who do see things clearly. Uh, Paul at one point tells Peter, don't let anyone look down at you for your youthfulness. This is not an an ageism passage where it's pro-older people and anti-younger people. But once again, the spirit of God knows how we're designed and how we long for power and influence. And when we're less mature, the way we wield and Uh, manage authority and power is less healthy. And so Peter and all of the wisdom that he has as an apostle and inspired by the spirit, this is what he says to young people in the flock, submit to your elders. Why? King Jesus gave you the elders that you need. Jesus loves his flock and he's gonna give us the leaders that we need for our health, for our security, for our growth. And when we're young, he looks at us and says, I want you to follow them. I gave them to you for my glory and your good. That's the second exhortation. And the third one is in the second half of verse five. So he says, hey, elders, I want to tell you, shepherd the flock. 
hey, young people, submit to those guys. And then he backs up and says, hey, everybody, I want you to put on humility. Put it on. Clothe yourselves with humility. Elders, you've got real authority. Wear it with humility. Young people, you need to submit to the good godly leaders God has given you with humility. He backs up and put, it puts everyone in the same bucket. Everybody, clothe yourselves with humility. Are we going to grow into the kind of not just individuals, but individuals plus a church that can live out this profound calling that this letter, that God in this letter is laying upon us to become a holy people who do good and persevere and persist in doing good, even when we're rejected and mistreated for those good things, when we're, when we suffer unjustly, how we become those people, we need healthy leaders that will shepherd us. We need to submit to those leaders and we all need to put humility on. And that leads to the next section because Peter thinks humility is so important. After giving it in his third exhortation, he now gives it as his first imperative. It must be important. So look what he does in verse six and following. Humble yourselves, therefore, remember I'm talking to all of you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's just a little note to remember the context. Yes, I know you're experiencing fiery trials. I know you're in your loyalty to Jesus. You're experiencing pushback and misunderstanding and mistreatment. I know that you're striving to do good and you're still paying for it as though you were doing bad. I get that. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to humble yourselves. How? Under the mighty hand of God. Can you trust God in your suffering? Do I believe that God is sovereign over all these things and he has all the might and the power and he can change the dynamics at any point? And he will at the proper time. He knows the proper time. I do not. At the proper time, he will exalt me. See, once again, it's all talking about the same thing, the same context. And what, how does a humble person act in a situation where I don't like being mistreated when I'm doing what is right? Please raise your hand if you enjoy being mistreated when you're doing what's right. No one enjoys that. So, so it creates anxiety. How long, oh Lord? How long must I do that thing which you've called me to do? And it's, it's, I'm losing friends over it. How long, oh Lord, must I persist in this path you've laid before me and no one understands me? And I'm, 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 I'm mistreated because of it. How long, oh Lord? And the answer is because we trust God, we cast those anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for us. God's the best interpreter of our circumstances and we often misunderstand them greatly. But God's people must never conclude, no matter the circumstances, that this means God does not care for me. No, in his great love and his care, he weaves things into our lives that we would never ask for. But he's doing really good and important work in our lives because he cares for us. And then he leads to two quick imperatives in verse eight, be sober-minded, be watchful. Uh, He's told us to be sober-minded three times already. So if the shoe fits, puts it on, put it on. And then be watchful rolls into this really interesting phrase that reminds us why we need a shepherd. Be alert, 
be watchful. You have an enemy. He intends to take you out. You know what he's like? He prowls around like a roaring lion. Why? He's seeking someone to devour. He wants to eat your lunch. He wants to take you out. He's the thief. He's the liar. He's the murderer. And he wants to take you out. And so Peter here is saying, be alert, be watchful. And one way this relates to shepherding is, it's the isolated prey that are always the most vulnerable. Those out on their own, seeking their own way, seeking their own path, not submitting, not listening, not being shepherded. Those isolated are the most vulnerable prey. And we have an enemy that would love to isolate us. You can't trust them. They don't have your best interest in mind. They just want to boss you around. Go do your own thing. And isolation is great danger for the children of God. We have an enemy, so we must be watchful. We must be sober-minded and alert. And that leads to the fourth imperative, which is simply this. Resist him. You can resist the enemy. How do you resist the enemy? Stand firm in your faith. It's a great clue about how the enemy will attack you. You're not really loved. You're not really forgiven. God's not going to bless you. No, you, you resist him by standing firm in your faith. The, the, your enemy is an accuser and you can say back to him, um, all my sins have been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life's too hard. It's never going to work out. I'm a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Everything already belongs, belongs to me. You resist the evil one by standing firm in your faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting your heart to him and his promises. And that leads to verse 10, which is maybe my, you can't have favorites. This, this is my favorite, not favorite um, in the passage. And I love what Peter says. And this gets us to our final point, this one gracious God undergirding all this. This impossible calling. I can't do it. You can't do it. We can't do what God is calling us to do in this passage in our own strength, by our own habits, by our own powers, but God. Verse 10, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, oh, he will himself restore you. That's God's job. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you know in the hardest seasons, maybe you're in one right now, what the passage says, the God who has rescued you is the God of all grace. Do you know in a very hard season that God cares for you? What is the chief evidence that the one true God is the God of all grace for you and me? What is the chief evidence that this God cares for you and me? It was the beginning of the pastor our passage and Peter witnessed it himself, the sufferings of Christ. Why did Jesus Christ suffer on the cross? Because he cares for you. 
Why did he suffer on the cross and not use his power to rescue himself from all the condemnation and the blame and the abuse for your salvation? Because you're deeply loved. Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross and poured out his life unto death. And he did not vindicate himself then and there. But on the third day, the father did vindicate him. He raised him from the dead because Jesus didn't rescue himself on the cross. Your sins were paid full for in full. And then he was vindicated on the third day. If you believe in Jesus, you're completely forgiven and his vindication belongs to you as well. Don't you see? Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to our God. Don't you see? Jesus suffered wrongly at the hands of sinners to reveal the grace and mercy of God. So that same God, that same Savior now calls us to live a life that looks like, tastes like, and smells like his saving love and power. That's the call. And the one who cares and loves, he will strengthen and empower us to do it. Even when we come and hear him address our hearts from his word, and especially even when we come to his table, where his self-giving love is presented to us and he is present to us again. Let's pray and meet him at his table. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, how thankful we are that you gave your life for us. Thank you that we're forgiven because of you. Thank you that we're accepted as righteous because of you. Now, Lord Jesus, we've heard your call upon our lives and we know we can't do it left to ourselves. So we praise you and thank you that you've not left us to ourselves But we come now with open hands asking that you would give us the grace and strength we need to live as your people. Amen.